to answer some more of your questions. I love these questions, man. These are great. I could just keep going on and on on these babies. My only problem is every time I get one, I start realizing, oh, I'm spending too much time on this question, and then i got to decide which one I'm going to cut back. Um, and many have said how they've liked them, and we'll try and make this a yearly thing so that you can uh, just ask questions about things we won't come to for a long time if we're just going through books of the Bible. And today we're going to answer some que- one question on salvation, the last one that I categorized into that, um, and then we'll look at some questions related to the church. And uh, hopefully as we go through there, you'll find something edifying and of good um, information for you that uh, might clarify some things. The first one is this about the parable of the soils. If a person seems or appears to fall under one of the bad soils, does that person have another chance at salvation? Or does that show where his heart is? Well, it shows where his heart is if he doesn't respond correctly. But the big part of the question is, do we only get one chance? And just to remind you, the parable of the soils is found in in Matthew 13, in Mark 4, and Luke 8. And uh, that is uh, one of the parables that Jesus interpreted, which is a great one because uh, some of them aren't interpreted and they're very hard to interpret. But Jesus did interpret um, the parable. He said that the seed was the word of God. Uh, a man went out to sow. Uh, somebody goes out and shares the gospel, shares God's word with people. And he says the, the field represents the world of men. And uh, the different kinds of soils represent people's heart responses to the gospel. And when Jesus is explaining the parable, he explains three different kinds of bad soil and uh, one good soil. And he says there's three kinds of soil, bad soil, that do not produce any crop. These are unbelieving responses. He first talks about the rocky soil. This is the soil where there is a quick response and the plant may grow up and then it withers because it has no depth of soil. He talks about the weedy soil, which it starts growing too, but then choked out by the weeds and then this other uh, seed sown on uh, the path of a hard pan and it may be good soil but it's good soil that's packed so hard that nothing can ever grow it's dry it's hard and so nothing happens with that either jesus explains that the rocky soil um, even though a person may seem to have a response to the gospel and may even be excited for a while he doesn't really come to repentance and this is uh indicated by the fact that he is unwilling to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He says, as soon as persecution and affliction arise because of the word, he falls away. So in other words, he's willing to have Jesus for comfort, but not to suffer. And so he is not really a Christian at all. Then there is the weedy soil, which also starts growing but it's choked out. And Jesus says what chokes out the, that um, seed is the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, which tell us that there are some people who may come to church for a time and, and may even be, be involved, but they've never really come to repentance. They've never really left the world. They've never really turned their back on the world and turned towards Christ to follow him. They've still got their tentacles and their roots in the world, and that chokes them out, and so they don't produce any crop. Then there is the seed that is sown on the path, which would just be 
the word of God sown in a very hard heart and it lays on the surface and Jesus says Satan comes and snatches away the word and so nothing happens. And there are those who are willing to have God on their terms. There are those who are willing to, um, you know, be religious as long as it doesn't affect their job, their pleasures, their pursuits of their sins. They have dragons in the closets and uh, they don't want those dragons messed with. They're feeding them and uh, they like them. And so they are unwilling to really forsake all and take up their cross and follow Christ. They're only willing to give some religious attention to Christianity. And in, by doing so, they just betray the fact that they don't know Christ at all. But there is one good soil, and that is the soil that Jesus says produces a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And the whole idea is, is a true believer who truly comes to repentance will produce fruit. John the Baptist taught this. Jesus taught this. The apostles taught this. Good trees produce good fruit. Those that don't produce fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we know that Jesus could not be saying, well... If you reject the gospel once, it's over for you. Because we know that, even from our own personal experience, that we were probably shared with multiple, multiple times. I mean, most people are not, you don't just share with them once and they come to the Lord. Most of the time it's many plantings and then finally some things take root and they come to repentance. I think what Jesus is talking about is he's looking at people's lives over the whole course of their life and at the end of the life asking, are they good soil or bad soil? Did they produce a crop or not? And uh, I don't think he's saying if you reject once, um, you know, it's over for you because uh, the scriptures tell us that uh, that's definitely not true. We can preach the gospel many times and then sometimes God is pleased to draw people to repentance even way, way later on in their life. But there is a category of people that the scripture discusses, and I'd like to just address that, a group of point of no return people. There are some people who sin against full knowledge and full revelation of the gospel and get to the place where they are beyond being saved. Now, what's good about it is we don't know who those people are. But what's bad about it is it's true. You know, you can be driving your car towards a cliff and going, you know, 90 miles an hour. And there is a point that no matter how hard you step on the brake, you will go over the edge. You, you can't stop. You have gone beyond the point of no return. It's kind of like the space shuttle when it's orbiting the Earth. You know, there is a time when gravity gets a hold of that big aircraft and sucks it into the atmosphere. And no matter how hard they try, they cannot escape. And that's kind of how it is with some people. And the, the title that the Bible gives them would be apostates. That's what they're called. Those who fall away from the faith. It's not like they were saved and then lose their salvation, but they get full revelation and then turn their back on what they know to be true. And so let me just take you to three texts which describe these kind of people. And I'll show you some characteristics. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. This is a very fun passage because it's a very scary passage and one that people like to talk about. But in Hebrews 6, um, we come to 
a really clear case of people who have fallen away after receiving full knowledge. And what I want to do is have you turn to 5.11, and we'll get to 4.64 in just a second. But he's speaking to some fence-sitters, some people in the church, and he's warning them not to become like these other people who have left. And he says in verse 11, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need, need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant But the solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He's speaking to these people who are in the church who who need to get on with it, who need to go for it, who need to leave Jesus loves me, this I know, and get on to some of the deeper doctrines and faithful service and all those things we're called to be in the church. And so he calls them in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, to leave these elementary teachings behind and to pursue the deeper things of Christianity and Christ. Then in verse 3 he says, And this we will do if God permits. And he uses we there. And then verse 4 he says this. Now he is going to address a group of people who have been in their midst. They have come into the New Testament church. They have heard the gospel. They have had fellowship with the saints. Maybe they've even seen the apostles do miracles. Maybe even they saw Jesus do miracles. And they saw all of these incredible workings. They saw the gospel working out in people's lives. People changed. People transformed. People just radically changing. They saw it all. They heard it all. They fellowshiped with it all. There is no way they could have any more revelation than what they already have. And this is what he talks about in verse 4. For in the case of those, this other group of people, who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't become partakers in a salvation sense. They came partakers in their association with believers and have tasted of the good word of God They heard God's word preach and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Here is a group of people who came in who hang around the saints, who saw God working in the church, who heard the gospel preached and heard it preached and heard it preached and heard it preached. They had as much revelation as anyone could ever hope to have in order to be saved. And they turned away and said, you know, I don't think this Christianity thing's good. I'm going to go back to Judaism and start offering sacrifices again. And when they do that, they're declaring that Jesus is not the Lamb of God. And that's how they crucify themselves afresh, the Son of God. Every time they offer a sacrifice, they're declaring Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the Lamb of God. He is not the suffering servant of Isaiah. And their tragic fate is it becomes impossible to renew them again to repentance. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 is another instance, very scary passages here. In verse 24 of Hebrews 10, this is a, this is a very well-known section here, verse 24 and 25, let us uh, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drying near. For, verse 26, 
If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, well, where do they get the knowledge of the truth? By being in the church, by assembling with believers. The nearest antecedent sin mentioned is not assembling as a habit, leaving the believers. And he says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, just like they received the knowledge in chapter 6 and turned away, so these people do too. Notice what he says there. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's bad. That is real bad. I mean, if you don't have a sacrifice for your sins, you are in trouble. But there is something waiting for them. Look at verse 27. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment at the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he, that is Jesus, was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people as a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that right there is a scary passage. That there are some people who, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, have turned away from that truth and gone the other way, sinning willfully against what they have been exposed to. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That is an apostate. Turn to Second Peter 2, and we'll just show you one more text. And these are the scariest texts in all the Bible, in my opinion. It's one thing to not be saved. It's another thing to be beyond being saved. 2 Peter 2, verse 20, speaking of false teachers, and he's speaking of these people who claim to be Christians, but they have eyes full of adultery and greed and just engage in all sorts of corrupt things. And he says this in verse 20, For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice here, again, they have received knowledge. If they have escaped, that is, they've come into the church, they've heard what's bad, they've heard what's right, they've heard what's wrong, they've heard what's need to do, and so they start making a religious show. They pull away from the earth and the things of the world. So they do that. And then they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, just stop there for a second. That's bad. That is really bad. Because what is the state of an unbeliever? Well, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're blinded from the truth. They walk in darkness. They live in darkness. They're of their father, the devil, and the wrath of God abides on them. And what is worse than a person who is deceived and walking in darkness and having God's wrath abide on them? I'll tell you, a well-informed person who knows the gospel well and who has fellowshiped with the saints and has received a full revelation and then does that same thing. That person is much more accountable because they have received all of this information that they need and they have turned away from it. And then he says in verse 20, One, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. That's bad. It would be better that they would be ignorant than to have been well informed and turn away. 
And he says, it happened to them according to the proverb, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. That is an apostate. There is a point of hopelessness for some, which only God knows, thanks good, thank goodness. But for you, don't give up on anyone. Don't give up on anybody. I don't care how bad they are, how many times they've rejected. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul. Here's a guy who's the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, trained by Gamaliel, Mr. Persecutor of the church, executing the believers, chasing them down, hunting them down, hating Christ with a vengeance, and the one who wrote most of the New Testament. The guy who was the greatest missionary who ever lived. One of the godly examples in the scripture. God is able to take a tear and turn it into wheat. He is able to take a thistle and turn it into a fruit tree. So don't ever give up. And people come to Christ sometimes at the last moment, at the twelfth hour. Just as it, they enter into eternity. So don't ever give up on anyone. God is able to save people. Now. I'd like to address some questions that related to ecclesiology, which is a fancy word that means questions related to the doctrine of the church. And these are some great ones here. Here's one here. This is a pretty easy one here. Why do we have communion once a month? You know, why not have it every week? Why not have it twice a week? Why not have it once every six months or once a year? Why just once a month? Well, because when you study the scriptures and you look at all the texts related to the Lord's Supper and communion, you can find texts where they were weekly doing things. And the text basically says in 1 Corinthians 11.25 this. This is Paul speaking of what Jesus said in the upper room. And the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There you go. Jesus says, When you do do it, remember me. That's it. He doesn't say, you know, do it once a month. If we wanted to, we could do it every time the church met. And we could do it Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, every Bible study, every, every gathering, anytime we want, we could do it. Or some churches do it once a year. And man, it's special, man. They do a huge deal. It's a big deal. It's like a giant remember Jesus service. And that's fine too. You can do either one. But the Bible doesn't say thou shalt have it every other week. And so we have freedom in there and the elders have decided to do it once a month. And that's why we do it once a month. Okay, next question. The third question. Do you have to be a church member on the role or roster to be dedicated and under the leadership of the church? What's the essential importance of being a standing member of the church? I want you to know this question is good. This is a good question. Um, it's questions like this which keep other questions from being answered. But I'll try and answer this in a fairly concise way. But it just it brings out so many good things to discuss and so many things that a lot of people have never even thought about. What is membership about? You know, uh, well, Why do we do this? See, many people feel that they shouldn't have to become members of the church. Uh, they can't find a verse that says, you know, thou shalt uh, go to a certain uh, uh, church with a certain name and fill out some form and sign this thing and, you know, enter it and send it to the office. There's no verse like that. And, you know, when I became a believer, they would argue, I gave my life to Christ and I become part of his church. I'm part of the universal church. And nobody can take me out of that. Jesus put me in the church, the church. And so I don't need to commit to some local body. I can stay at home. I can listen to tapes and have church at home or, or whatever. I can go from this church to that. 
And it is true that all believers are part of the universal church, but it is not true that we shouldn't commit ourselves to local body. And this is where we need to have some clear understanding. If you are a believer, you are part of the universal church, and no one can get you out of that. You are saved and in Christ's body, and you will stay there. But what about the local church? What about the local church? Well, there's ample biblical instruction to let us know that God wants every single Christian to be committed to a local church, to be under the authority of the leadership of the local church, and to serve consistently and faithfully in the local church. Now, we could go to texts, and these are just several lines of reasoning that you might want to think of. When you look at the book of Acts, like in Acts 2.41, after um, the gospel is preached, it says, So then those who had received his words were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls to the church. Now, when you think about things like that, you just read that and go, Okay, well, it's 3,000 here, and 4,000 here, and 5,000 here, and 2,000 here, and 1,000 here, and you know, 10 people here, and so what? Well, they were keeping track. They were keeping track of who was in the church. They had some sort of roles. Now, back then, though, it was a little bit different now because there was only one church. You know, it was the uh, Calvary Bible Church of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, that's where everybody went. Um, there was only one place to go. And so if you got disgruntled, you couldn't go anywhere. They had good leadership, though. All the apostles were there at the beginning. And uh, they were speaking inspired utterances from God. But as you read through the book of Acts, you see them um, talking about the church and the people who have committed themselves to the church. And I would just encourage you to read through the book of Acts and see what happens. We can't go through all the text right now. And once they came to saving faith, then what did they do? They got baptized. They got baptized to make a public profession of faith. And you need to realize that when they did get baptized, it was a lot different than what happens here. You know, when we have baptism, you know, night or whatever, and, you know, you invite your friends and your family, and, oh, it's so cute, and everybody's up there, and they're nervous, and they're giving their testimony, and we dunk them in the water, and, oh, it's kind of fun, and it's kind of a great time. Well, for a Jew, to be a Jew all his life, and then to turn away from Judaism was a major, major commitment. They would lose all of their family. What? I don't have a son anymore. I don't have a daughter anymore. Who are you talking about? Well, no, 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 no. You know, uh, you know, Kayam, your son. He's like, I have no son by that name. They would totally unborn you. They wouldn't even acknowledge your existence anymore. You would be rejected from all of your family and all of your business relationships that had anything to do with Judaism. And in the first part of the book of Acts, almost all those people are all Jews. And they would be totally rejected, totally ostracized. They would have nothing. They would often lose everything in coming forward. And so when they baptized themselves... Uh, chose to be baptized into the church, they were making major, major commitments of huge consequences. It wasn't just, oh, invite your friends and we'll do it and have a little party afterwards. Hardly anything like that. So it's sometimes hard to see uh, the significance of those being baptized, making a public profession of faith. I'm no longer going to be doing Judaism. I am now going to be doing Christianity. And therefore, they would be treated as a traitor and an outcast. 
Now, there's a second thing we need to think about, and that is the leadership of the church. The Bible talks about the church having elders, uh, uh, qualified men who meet the qualifications of an elder, listen to scripture, who are supposed to be leading the church. They are supposed to be training the church and, uh, you know, discipling the church and teaching the church and coming alongside the church and, and overseeing the church and making sure that people who live in unrepentant sin are disciplined from the church and, and those kind of things. Now think about this. Can I go to another local body of believers? You know, can I just, you know, drive down Magnolia, whatever first church I come to, pop in there on Sunday morning and just tell whoever's there, listen, I'm preaching today. I don't know how long you usually preach here, but I got an hour's worth. And so sit down. I got something I want to say here. I'm part of the church and I'm a pastor. So listen to me. Oh, man, they would throw me out the door and tell me I was crazy. Why? Because that's not my church. Those aren't my sheep. Those people haven't recognized me as a leader. I have no authority there. I have no right to teach that flock. No, each local church is called to call their own leaders, men who have showed themselves faithful, who meet the qualifications, and then the congregation volunteers to submit to those people. They are commanded to submit to those people. Now, The question is, who is my congregation? Who is my flock? Does anyone step in the door, my flock? Is any false teacher who comes in here to try to corrupt this body part of my flock? How about a person who thinks they are saved but are not? How about people coming to feel good and they don't even want to worship God? How about people who have no clue what the gospel is? They're just coming to this building because they've been feeling bad and they're kind of guilty. What about those people? See, those are the kind of questions you need to ask. If you are going to enjoy the benefits of the local body of believers, you need to commit to the local body of believers. You need to place yourself under the authority of the leadership of that local body, and you need to make a commitment to be accountable, to give, to serve, and to follow the leaders. Let me just read you a couple texts. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Paul is speaking to the issue of leadership and he says this. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very, very highly in love because of their work. And then he says, live in peace with one another. Now notice this. Now, the guy who has church at home, what leaders are over him? What leaders are instructing that person? None. He is in direct disobedience to the word of God. In order for leaders to be over you and among you, you have to be among them and you have to let them know that you are among them. You have to place yourself under their leadership. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So my question is, for those who like to roam around, what leaders have you placed yourself under who have charge over your soul? Who will give an account for their shepherding of you? Who are they? You have to commit yourself to a local church 
in order to answer that question. How can they keep watch over your soul if you don't commit yourself to them? You can't. How can you be involved? How can you use your spiritual gifts? If all spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12 through 13 and Romans 12 and Peter 5 or whatever, if they're all given for the edification of the body, what body is being edified by your spiritual gifts if you aren't committed to a body? You know, people come in this door here. We don't just say, hi, it's a warm body. Uh, Serve anywhere you want. We want to talk to them. We want to see they're faithful. We want to see they're committed. We want to see them be committed to the church, place themselves under the leadership, and then after they show themselves faithful, then we begin to put them into service. So commitment is necessary. Usually people don't want to become members because they don't want to be accountable. That's the real issue. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They don't want people asking them pointed questions like, so, how's your walk with the Lord? How's your prayer life? You struggling in any area of your sin in your life? You've been reading your Bible? What ministries are you serving in? They don't want anybody doing that. Man, they've got all these skeletons in their closet. Man, they're trying to you know, keep people from looking at them. Don't go prying on my personal life. This is my personal life. Well, I'm telling you, if you're part of the body and I'm part of the body, then you're part of me and I'm part of you. So you better be concerned about me and I better be concerned about you. That's like, you know, never washing your one foot. It's like, well, hey, you know, that's my foot. You know, let's keep it over there. You know, it gets smashed by something. It's like, hey, 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 hey. You know, I'm the head. I'm not taking care of it. And the hands are going, hey, I take care of myself. You ever try and wash your hand with one hand? It's very difficult. And so the body is to be concerned about each other. And we are to get into people's lives. And we are to ask people those pointed questions. But people who have sin in their life don't want anybody getting close. And so they're hiding. They're hiding. And usually they roam around from church to church. And as soon as somebody starts getting close, they're gone. They're gone somewhere else, and then they, oh, that church is legalistic. That church is this. That church is that. When really they're saying, I don't want to be accountable. Those people were finding out what I was really like, and so I'm bolting. Here's another reason. We need to consider church discipline. This is one aspect that the leadership are to, are to engage in, and all of us are to engage in. You know, usually we think of church discipline as, you know, you have the person's sin and name addressed for the church, and... Uh, You're all exhorted to admonish that person and to treat them like a tax gatherer because they're unrepentant. But really, church discipline should be something all of us engage in on a regular basis. Anytime you see any believer in any sin or blow it in any way and they aren't aware of that or they're unrepentant, you should go to them and say, hey, you know, the Bible says this and what you're doing is not right. And most church discipline is just something that happens between two people. Every once in a while, somebody says, well, no, I'm not going to, you know, do this or that. I'm not going to obey God. And they put their foot down. And then you take a couple people. And a lot of times they say, well, you're right. And they quit. But they say, if you go to them and they don't repent, and if you take a couple more and they don't repent, then you go to the church. And if they still don't repent, you get them out of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, are we not to judge those within the church? Of course we are. And then he says... Don't even eat with any so-called brother. If he be an immoral person, he says, remove that wicked person from your midst. Get him out of there. Now, let me ask you this. 
How do you get people out of something they were never in? Obviously, he's not saying remove them from the universal church because we can't do that. So what are we moving, removing them from? The local church. How do we know they're in the local church? Because they committed somehow. Now, granted, you could do it in many ways, and we have freedoms to do that. We could have people come up here and swear some sort of uh, commitment up front, or we can have them do a membership form, which is how most churches do it. It doesn't matter, but there's got to be some commitment because you can't get somebody out of something they aren't in. You just can't do it. So, there's a need because of church discipline. And these things teach us that the local body is comprised of people who have declared themselves to be Christian and have made a commitment to a particular body to submit to that leadership and to serve and give of their time and their money and their gifts and their talents and on and on. Many churches, they have leaders who are not even saved. And this is scary. As soon as the standard drops and you can do what you want and I can do what I want and there's no accountability and you aren't getting anybody's faiths and, yeah, you know, I see that guy, he's in sin, but I'm not going to tell him anything because I'm in sin too. And so, you know, everybody just starts the, just the lowest common denominator. It gets dropped and dropped and pretty soon unbelievers worm their way into leadership and pretty soon it is a church, but it's really being led by men who are of their father, the devil. And then the standard gets dropped way down And Satan starts leading the church to these people who are spiritually dead. Even though they're very religious. Very religious. And that is the great danger. When there isn't high accountability between believers. I'm not just talking about leadership. I'm talking about every one of you caring about everyone else. Caring about them so much that you are willing to wound them. Like Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. And you can always tell if you come to somebody and you talk to them about their sin, if they get angry, if they get mad, if they attack you back, we know what they are. They're fools. Do not correct a fool unless he hates you. Correct a wise man and he will be wiser still. So there will always be those people who like to come around and hang around and buzz around the perimeter of the church, but they never want to get involved to the place where people start getting into their lives because they've got something to hide. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of church membership, said this, I know there are some who say, Well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church. Now why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite sure about that? Can you be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commandments as by being obedient? There is a brick. What is it made for? To help build the house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about in the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do, end quote. That is a great, great quote. If you aren't part of a local body, committed to a local body, serving your gifts in the local body and letting other people serve you with their gifts, you are not serving your purpose as a Christian. 
You are not serving your purpose as a Christian. Membership includes commitment to the member, to the church, the local church, and the commitment of the local church to the member. And if you look in the New Testament, and I encourage you to do this, we read one text, Hebrews 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and encouraging one another and not forsaking the assembling of yourself. Well, all of those things are, are present active things. You always be doing those things in the local church. Well, the only way you can do that is be there. The New Testament knows nothing of rogue Christians, unaccountable Christians, nothing. I can't even think of a passage. Every single letter to every single church implies that a church in a certain location was given a letter and all those people were committed to that church and those people served in that church and did what that church was supposed to do according to the word of God. God doesn't know anything about these people who, well, I'll just have church in my car as I'm going to the beach. Now, here's another question. You can see why that one, see, I could go deep and long on that one. Okay, here's some other one. Why do you rarely give an altar call on Sunday morning? I love this question. I love this question. The problem is, is it's a personal question, and it's not a Bible question. So I had to change it. Does the Bible tell us to give altar calls? No. There's the answer. First, we don't have an altar. The sacrificial system... The Old Testament has been done away with, so we don't have an altar. Now, if you want to call this the altar, you could, or one of these speaker stands or something, but we don't have an altar. That's one reason. Another reason, and the more importantly, the Bible never tells us to give altar calls. That's why. The Bible does not tell us to call people to come forward to pray a prayer or say something or do a public show of faith in order to be saved. What the Bible does tell us to do is call sinners to repentance and faith in the gospel message, which is that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again in the third day. That's what the Bible teaches us to do. And see, people, you need to remember that you are the church, not this building. The church comes to this building, but this building is not the church. This is the place where the church meets, assembles. That's what the church means, assembly. And every one of you is to go out and share your faith with those who need to hear the gospel. And once they come to repentance and become part of the universal church through faith, bring them to this place and we can train them and they can worship with us and whatever. Now, that doesn't mean people don't come to faith in church, but I'm saying it's your responsibility because you are the church to share the gospel with the lost. You see, the whole idea, the concept of altar calls, um, one of the first major proponents was a man named Charles G. Finney. And he, he described something which, which he termed the anxious seat. You know, you, you preach some major message, you get people all emotionally frothed up. I mean, you just get excited and get people in faith, you know, and just, ah, you know, and you jump around and leap off the stage and do theatrics and you know, get them frothed up. And then you preach damnation to them until they get, they get anxious. And you know they're anxious. You can see it in their faith. They're like, ah. <laughs> and then you appeal to the anxiety that you have created in them. Some of you are feeling anxious right now. You feel God tugging on your heart, don't you? You feel guilty. That's the call of God. Come forward and receive Christ. Okay. They all run forward. 
And then what happens is, is people come forward and they just say, tell me what to do. And so pray this prayer. Let me tell you. And so you say, Jesus died for my sin. Repeat after me. And it rose again. I believe this and please save me. Okay, you're saved. You're saved. Don't ever doubt it. That's the bad part. Repentance can happen in the pew. Repentance can happen in the parking lot. It can happen anywhere. People are not saved by coming forward. They're saved by repentance when God grants them repentance, gives them the grace, the faith, the mercy to believe in the gospel message. That's how people are saved, period. Now, mind you, it can happen in the pew and it can happen when they come forward. But coming forward doesn't save you. And you need to keep that in mind. Altar calls have been used by many in the past. And many people have given their lives to Christ and have responded to the gospel and maybe even responded to the anxious seat. But you need to remember that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we can give people a false assurance of faith when we have them do something instead of just calling them to repentance and faith. Now, once they are saved, once they have given their lives to Christ, then, when they're ready to make a public profession of faith, there is something for that, and it is called baptism. Baptism is your public declaration of faith after you have been saved. A person who is being led by the Spirit of God will repent And once they repent, they become a Christian. Altar calls are fraught with problems, as history has borne out. People, you know, you play some song and you play one more, play a few more choruses, just as I am, just as I am. You know, come on, people. And the other people are in the audience, you know, and they're going, oh, come on, let's go home. Somebody go forward. Mildred? Just go forward so we can go. (laughs) And people start like, just go on. Just go forward. In some churches, I kid you not, they would prime the pump. They would tell people to hear, okay, now, once we play about three verses in there, you you just trickle up on the third verse, and you trickle up on the fifth verse, and you trickle up on the sixth verse of the song, and just prime the pump, prime the prompt. And pretty soon people have this emotional draw and they're making an emotional response, but they aren't really coming to salvation. You can't emotion anyone into the kingdom. God is the only one who saves people and he saves them through the gospel. Now you can have emotions when you're being saved, but faith has an object and that is the gospel message that points to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he does. It's not just a feeling of, Oh, man, I, I feel guilty. I, I got to come forward. I got to do something. I feel bad. And so I come forward thinking that if I go forward, I'll be saved. No. You get saved by repenting. Now, you can repent when you come forward. or You can repent in the pew. But what happens is a lot of people have come forward and never repented. They've been told they're saved. They're not. And then they've tried to come to church and live the Christian life, and they can't. And they're very frustrated. I've had people from this church tell me, you know, I've gone forward, but man, I know I'm not saved. I know I'm not saved. They have been told they were saved, and my mom told me I was saved, and I was baptized here, but you know what? I, I, I don't have any desire to read God's Word. I don't have any desire to pray. I don't have any desire to 
serve God. I just want to, I have, I just sin. That's because you're not saved until you repent. You know, but I went forward and they, they told me I was saved. Well, they told you wrong. They told you wrong. You don't get saved by coming forward. You get saved by repenting. Let me just give you some, some illustrations here. One time I was in Boise and well, I was in there for a long time, one time, uh, a dark part of my life. Um, I was in Boise and, uh, and there was a pastor there who, who wanted to, us to be involved in this um, drama production. They were, it was kind of a major, scary drama, very emotionally appealing, trying to get people. And then they said, we're going to have an invitation at the end. And we said, no, we don't want to do that. Said, well, why not, man? It's just a chance. We're going to reach a lot of people for Christ. And we say, well, what we want to do is we take, I mean, if these people want all this money and resources and all this man hours put in there, say, so we just tell, we just, if, if everybody in our congregation just shared Christ with one person they knew, that would probably have way more fruit than just doing this thing. Oh, no, man, you're, you're wrong. So they say, well, we aren't going to do it. So they did it. And after they did this big production and put all this money and time and effort into it and, uh, we, I met with a guy about a month later, and he goes, oh, man, it was great. I said, well, what happened? 800 people made decisions for Christ. I said, no kidding. I said, your church grew by 800 people? He said, well, no. I said, how many of those 800 people are coming to your church now? Well, one for sure. Maybe two. You see, a true convert is one who converts. Regeneration transforms a personal life. They want to be around the stage. You can't keep them away. I mean, one of the plagues and joys of the ministry is a new convert. I mean, I get emails from some people who just come to the Lord, and they, did, they write me an email, you know, as if they're like the only person in the world. You know, I get four emails a day, and they're, they're emailing me, and email me, ask me all these Bible questions. Here, look at this verse. You know, I just, they're just excited. They're just starving, you know. They just want to come to everything. They want to come to 12 Bible studies, you know. You can't keep them away. They, they're dying to be around the saints. They love it. That is a Christian. The person who makes an emotional decision then goes back into their sin and never comes to church, is that a Christian? Hardly. Billy Graham had, has what he calls the invitation system. And, and in one crusade in England, uh, it was reported that I think 36,000 people had come to the Lord. That is a lot of people. But when somebody did a survey afterwards, this is what they discovered. They discovered of those 36,000 people, almost all of them were all regular church attenders who went to church all the time, every week. And that the number of new converts was probably 1%. That is the normal for evangelistic events, 1% to maybe 1.5% of people when you have big mass evangelistic type things actually come to the Lord, get plugged into a church, start growing in the Lord, start serving the ministry. The, the great effective way is when people have relationships with people like their neighbors, members of their family, people at work, and they share their faith with people they know. 
And so we want is people to repent and believe God, believe the gospel message, and then respond in public baptism. Let's just look at a few texts. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and we'll just do a little survey of Acts here real quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, if I can get there. This is the end of Peter's sermon. So we're going to see how Peter ends his sermon here. This is what he says, verse 36. Peter has just finished preaching the gospel and he says this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was Peter's closing line there. And notice, he wasn't very seeker sensitive. You killed him. The promised one. Notice, no altar call, no call to come forward, not even a call to prayer, prayer, or sign a card. Then look at what he says in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, what was that? The gospel message and that Peter said they were the one who killed the long-awaited Messiah. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now here we see the Word of God accompanied by the Spirit of God bringing men under deep conviction of their sin. That's how people are saved. And then look at verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You repent, become a Christian, then be baptized to publicly proclaim your faith. And that's what he says. And you say, well, Jack, that's kind of an isolated text. Okay, turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 19. This is the end of another sermon. Peter is finishing up, presenting the gospel at a different uh, time. And this is what he says. Therefore, repent and turn so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. No altar call, no exhortation to come forward, a call to repent and believe. End of sermon. Now, turn to Acts 17, just to see maybe Peter's got it wrong, and let's see how Paul does it. Peter is preaching to Jews, and Paul here is preaching to Gentiles. Look at verse 30. Acts 17. Paul is finishing up his, his gospel presentation on Mars Hill to the Greek thinkers, and he says this, verse 30. Therefore... Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice, no call to come forward, a call to repentance, followed by a certain expectation of judgment to those who will not. Man, that isn't very loving. Oh, yes, it is. To tell people the truth is always loving. That is the only loving thing to do. And so he calls them to repentance and says, and judgment will happen if you don't. And we know it's true because of the resurrection. Look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some people began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Now, here we see two kinds of responses. There are the sneers, the scoffers, those who are violent to the gospel. It's like, oh, come on. Don't give us this resurrection business. People don't rise from the dead. And then there's this other group. We will hear you again. 
See, the Spirit of God is moving in this certain group of people. The gospel, which is preached, a call to repentance, a call to judgment for those who will not repent, and then the Spirit of God is using that information to soften people's hearts and bring them to repentance. So look at verse 33. So Paul went out of their midst. He left them. He didn't say, well, I'm going to stay around after the service. Anyone wants to come forward? He left. And notice what happened. But some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. They pursued Paul. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Turn over to Acts 26. This is in Paul's defense to Agrippa, where this is a great defense. You know, every time Paul had an opportunity, he didn't didn't hesitate to share the gospel. So he says, you know, well, why are these people mad at you? And so he's like, well, let me just tell you. And so he starts with his his testimony, and he shares how he came to the Lord and gives this great testimony of how he became a Christian. And then he describes what he's been doing all of this life as as an apostle and as an evangelist. And this is what he tells him in Acts 26.20. He says, what he did was keep declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate with repentance. And coming forward is not a deed appropriate with repentance. It's turning from sin. That's what a deed is doing those things that God's word commands us to do. So, these are some of the reasons why I don't do altar calls. Now, I think it's legitimate to call people to repentance. And I also think it's legitimate to give people an opportunity to ask more questions, to get information. That's why we send people to the prayer room and say, hey, if you want to you know, go to the prayer room, if you want anybody to pray for you and pray for your needs, and not just for salvation, but for any reason, please do that. I mean, anybody who wants to hear more about the gospel, we need to give it to them. But what we don't want to do is we don't want people to think that by coming forward or by raising their hand, they're saved. I mean, there's some churches where if you raise your hand in the service, you know, how many people here want to know Jesus? You know, raise your hand. And then they they raise their hand. You're saved. Don't ever doubt your salvation. You are saved. You will always be saved. You can never lose your salvation. And then that person lives the rest of their life inoculated to Christianity. There is only one person who is more lost than a person who doesn't know the gospel, and that's the person who thinks they're saved. But they are not, and they do know the gospel. That is a very desperate place to be in, because you quit searching. And you try and you know, live out your Christian life, and you see these other people, and they have all this joy and all this victory, and, and they have all this passion for God's Word and serving. And, and when you look at them, you just think, there's something wrong with me. I, that's not me. Well, it may be you just need to become a Christian. That's all. Maybe somebody gave you false assurance. Look at your life. Is God changing you? Is he transforming you into the image of Christ? If there is no manifestation of regeneration of a transformed life, if you're not a new creature, then you're not a new creature. And you need to come to repentance. So what would be the application of this? And as we close, I'll give you this. Learn how to share the gospel. 
Learn how to share the gospel. If you can't open your Bible and take somebody through relevant texts, you know, all of a sudden fall through to the glory of God. And, you know, while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. And you know, if you confess through the mouth of Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And, you know, you are called to repent. And God so loved the world. And, you know, verses like that. If you can't take somebody through the scriptures and show them a clear gospel plan, you need to be able to do that because you are the church and it's your responsibility to make Make sure people hear the gospel. Now, they can do it here and they will hear the gospel here. But primarily, we come here to worship God and get equipped so we can go out and evangelize the lost. And so, if we bought an altar and put it up here, we could offer sacrifices of prayer on it and thanksgiving but we aren't going to offer any sort of emotional responses and encourage people they're saved until they manifest the fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful that you are a great God and that your word is clear. You call all men everywhere to repent and believe that Jesus died in the cross for our sins, that he was buried and rose again on the third day. Father, if there is anyone here who has never come to repentance, who has believed or trusted in something other than Jesus Christ and Him alone to save them, who may be trusting in an act they did, some sort of religious deed or deeds, Father, may You bring them to repentance. Father, we pray that as we leave here today, we would ask ourselves, do we know how to share your truth with other people. And if we don't, may we make that commitment to learn how to share our faith and share the gospel because we know it is the power of God for all who believe. Father, we thank you for that and we pray that as we leave here today, what Paul prayed, that we would have boldness in proclaiming the gospel. Father, if Paul needed it, how we need it much, much more. So Father, help us to be bold and not to... Worry about suffering for your sake because you have told us that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And Father, we want to give you honor and glory by doing your word in a way that pleases you. Amen.